0: Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Never mind molecular gastronomy, even without michelin star chefs' use of techniques such as spherification, sous-vide machines and meat glues, there's more than enough science going on in the kitchen for you to get your teeth into. In this episode, we catch up with George Vakinis, a research director and former head of the Education Office at the National Centre for Scientific Research in Athens, Greece. He tells us all about how his two lifeline passions, science and cooking, led him to write his new book, Physics in the Kitchen, why food often tastes better the day after it's cooked, and he also breaks down his method of cooking the perfect steak. So first off, I thought an interesting thing to look at would be your background. So you're a physicist who's written a book about cooking. How did you reach that point?
1: <laughs> well, being a physicist, of course, it's, it's, it's actually in my life. It's been a pleasure and it's been a hobby almost. And sometimes I am a joke to people when they ask me about my job. I'm a researcher. I'm working in the material science work in advanced materials for space and for catalysis and for synthesis of materials for um, hydrogen production. But it's all, you know, good fun. So I spend a lot of time actually doing uh, science outreach. I go to schools. I even go to prisons, actually. I've been to prisons a few times. And I, I give them a lot of demonstrations about physics because it's just uh, so much fun. If you get deep enough in physics, then you really enjoy it a lot. And at the same time, uh, my big hobby, got a couple, but my big hobby is uh, cooking, really. It's, uh, it's just a pleasure. There's nothing better than actually doing an experiment in the kitchen and within an hour you have the result and you have feedback from your own people and how do they enjoy the cooking and you know things like that. So it was, it was straightforward. It was really uh, absolutely clear. That uh, something like that, you know, the kitchen would be an ideal vehicle to talk about physics in general. You know, if you have a look in the kitchen, you have nearly all of physics there. Uh, You know, you have atomic and molecular diffusion in the pot. You have uh, thermodynamics of heat transfer, energy transformations. You have quantum physics in the heating elements, the lights, the thermocouples, the quartz clock, whatever you... You have electromagnetism, uh, you know, all over the place, lights, motors, induction hubs, microwave ovens, all those things. You have physics of materials, my own uh, specific uh, area of expertise, when things bend or crack or behave strangely. You have microelectronics in computers, in mobiles, in gadgets. You have nanophysics, you know, in rising smoke. Uh, Fluid mechanics, turbulence, which is one of the most complicated things in physics, of course. You have uh, even nuclear physics in the smoke alarm. So, you know, everything's there. The kitchen is the best laboratory one can hope for. And, of course, you have chemical reactions. And we're going to talk about the difference between physics and chemistry in just a moment.
0: As you touched on there, a lot of people think of cooking as being predominantly chemistry-based. Yes, but in fact, it's not
1: really. The, The difference between physics and chemistry... Well, I, I would say I'm a physicist, so perhaps I'm a little bit uh, prejudiced here. But physics tries to deal with a lot of things that uh, that chemistry does not. Uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, a number of fields that the chemistry does not touch. So we try to understand then all sorts of physical phenomena that are, that uh, occur around us, uh, in, in particular in chemistry in this case. And whereas chemistry looks at reactions between compounds and uh, elements, etc. So. In chemistry, for example, in, in cooking, we have polymerization, so sauces, gravies, and all that. And in frying and baking, we have production of carbon dioxide, we have Maillard reactions, you have caramelization reactions. But all of these reactions, if you look deep enough, it's actually involved quantum mechanical interactions between electrons. So they are really physics down to it, isn't it? You know, everything boils down to physics. So it made a lot of sense to, to call, because I'm, I'm not talking only about cooking in the book, I'm talking about everything around in the kitchen. It
0: made a lot of sense to, to call it physics in the kitchen. So you mentioned there the Maillard reaction. So this is something that a lot of people talk about. So what exactly is it?
1: Well, yes, it's a Maillard reaction. is um, It's something that we see everywhere whenever there's a high temperature, and we, we, I would like to talk a little bit about high temperature and, and low temperature cooking later on. But essentially, at high temperatures, you get a reaction between starches, for example, in potatoes, and uh, or other, various other type of proteins, actually, in meat chicken and all that and with the sugars that, na- that naturally occur in in cooking or that we actually add within uh, during the cooking so th- this cre- reaction c- creates certain other polymeric type of uh, of compounds and they give that that lovely uh, aroma and the lovely taste and that we all enjoy in the fries and things like that and you know if you're very careful with the with the meat surface but but the problem is that Maillard reaction is very easy. It can overrun. So if you have a high temperature or you leave it too long, we all know what happens to food. It burns, essentially it's a carbonization reaction and everything goes down to the carbon, to the, the, the basic carbon of, of uh, organic materials. So it's something that you have to control very, very carefully.
0: So let's look at the cooking process then. So I think perhaps the biggest difference between styles of cooking is slow cooking First, fast cooking. So what's the difference there?
1: Well, this is what I alluded earlier. Uh, slow cooking is essentially low temperature cooking that takes a long time. Like, for example, when we make a nice soup or, 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 or something in the pot. Uh, whereas fast cooking is a frying, it's broiling, it's barbecuing and things like that. The difference is the amount of energy you put in. So everything has to do with energy in the, in the, in the kitchen. Everything. So slow cooking means that we need to give it more time to allow diffusion of atom, atoms and molecules to diffuse between one another, so you have a blending, you have a better mixing of the ingredients. And it's extremely important to have that because very sensitive things like herbs and spices and all that, they need slow cooking at a low temperature. So the maximum temperature you're going to get in the slow cooking is low energy cooking is 100 degrees, the boiling temperature of water. Whereas in high temperature cooking, you can get 170 degrees like we have in, when we fry, deep fry, for example, potatoes and things like that. So there's a big difference between one and the other. And the frying, the frying, broiling and all that is the mayored reaction, plus as well caramelization, there's other reactions as well. And that's the main thing, is the energy, the energy input and over the total amount of time. That's why the fast, high temperature is fast, low temperature is slow. And the one is the slower, it has to do with diffusion. The other one has to do with more chemistry, more the reactions, surface reactions, basically.
0: So you might have already sort of answered this in a way with saying about carbonization, but what exactly happens when we overcook food?
1: Oh, this uh, this is, uh, this is uh, the most dangerous thing. The the, the horrible, most horrible thing. A, a, a real chef would never ever present a customer with a well done. If somebody says well done, a chef will not will refuse <laughs> to offer that. You know, I agree. Like, <laughs> good, <laughs> because um, essentially what you're doing is that the more energy you put, you break down a lot of the side bonds of the proteins. So you end up with, the, with the, only with the spine, and the spine of the protein molecules is made up of carbon atoms, of course. And so essentially, you break, the, you, you get rid of all the oxygen and hydrogen and all the other things around the protein, and you end up with just a, just like a fish, you know, a bone in the middle that is inedible, and that's carbon, and that's why you have blackened foods whenever you leave them too long or at high temperature.
0: So, if we're talking about well done, rare, medium rare, etc., the first thing that will come to mind for most, unless they're vegetarians, I suppose, is a steak. If we're talking about a steak, what's going on when we cook, cook a steak and what's your preferred method?
1: Oh, there's no question about it. When I want something fried, I'll make sure that the, the first of all, this salt must never be, clo- must be, never be put on a steak before frying. Absolutely. Salt has this osmotic uh, ability. If you like, osmosis will drag, drag out as much water as possible from the meat and you're going to get it tough and you're going to get it inedible. So the first advice would never be to put salt on the meat. Secondly, is that to, uh, it's always a good idea to, re, to heat the, the meat first in a microwave oven. So you put it in the microwave oven for one or two minutes. Uh, it depends on the thickness of the meat. Then you fry it quickly a very short time, as short a time as possible, just to give it that little bit of um, of, uh, Maillard reaction on the surface. So you get this uh, slight aroma and the pleasure that you get the little taste. And when I say short, I'm talking about a minute maximum. And, you know, you take a steak or beef or whatever it is, you just fry it on both sides as little as possible. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not a bad idea to put a little bit of oil, even in the non-stick pans. But that's, that's, of course, personal preference.
0: So you mentioned the microwave there. Is that because a lot of people, I think, in my opinion, make a big mistake, which is taking the meat directly from the fridge and then cooking it?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's it's a no no, definitely. When you when you cook it directly from the fridge, or even, you know, some people I know that they defrost it a little bit in the microwave and then stick it on the, on the frying pan. No, it's not a good idea at all. Essentially what you're doing is that you are not heating up the uh, the meat properly inside. Even when it's when we're talking about rare, the temperature inside the meat should reach at least 55, 60 degrees. That's absolutely minimum. So uh, the, the ideal way of eating a, a meat would be a medium rare, what's it called. So it's going to be slightly red, very slightly, just red and cooked on the outside. The only way to be absolutely sure of that is you either start with a thin piece of meat or you have a thicker piece of meat which has been reheated but heated properly uh, internally with microwaves. And I explain all that about microwaves, how they give us a lot of uh, po- uh, interesting results
0: talking about preparations then a lot of times these days we use marinades so what happens when we marinate a food you know why why do we do that and what difference does it make
1: well the the, the reason we cook generally is to soften the meat the food the proteins in other words to uh, start the dissociation process uh, dissociation means breaking up the of the complicated molecules the proteins or whatever it is. so you want to uh, to start this process and uh, generally we marinate tough meat it could be game it could be uh, something uh, other tough meat uh, that we want to soften so by putting in the marinade for a few hours or a day or if it's game you need to put it at least for 2 days in the in the fridge of course and you always add a little bit of acidic substance and that starts the process of dissociation of, of breaking up of the complicated molecules and once that is done then the cooking can proceed uh, normal cooking can proceed just like you know the, the meat that you buy from the butcher so the, the idea is to end up with the smaller molecules, easier to digest and easier to, to derive pleasure from. And that's the main reason of marinade. Of course, you can add uh, herbs, spices, anything you like. Wine. I love adding wine in the marinade for, for meat or even for, for vegetables. You can marinate vegetables. For example, you can marinate uh, aubergines. You can marinate uh, lots of difficult vegetables. And then the cooking will be a lot easier. That's for vegetarians or, or for everyone.
0: So in a sense we're we're sort of almost pre-cooking them.
1: Oh, absolutely yes. It is a type of pre-cooking preparation for the proper breakup of the of the molecules to right down to to the smallest units of the proteins. yes.
0: So as as an Englishman, I have to talk about potatoes.
1: Well, the, the way to do it is to make sure that they're not very large. So when they are finally cooked properly, you know and, and nicely roasted around, and slight mayard brown or golden, then you need to be, make sure that the inside is also cooked. And when you roast them in the oven, of course, what you're doing, uh, you're you putting a lot of high temperature because the oven in this case would be about 180 degrees, even 200 degrees, a lot of energy wasted, but the result is quite, uh, it's the only way to get the result. And so you make sure that the roast potatoes would not be bigger than about an inch two and a half centimeters on its, on its side. It's never a good idea. And then you frequently baste them. And uh, most importantly, whatever meat you use, most important is to use lemons. Lots of lemon, lots of lemon juice, a little bit in the beginning, lots near the end, uh, five minutes from the end, you're gonna see an absolute fantastic result.
0: So that's a very Greek style of cooking, if I may say so. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's not just Greek, actually. You need to use um, uh, acidic substances in the cooking nearly everywhere. We put vinegar, for example, or, or wine in the stews. We put uh, lemon in the roasts and we put, uh, oh, you know, we put a lot of acidic stuff. And because during cooking, the acid transforms to sugars. So you, at the end of the day, you have fantastically sweet, almost sour, sweet type of uh, food, which is really lovely.
0: So we're talking about frying and roasting, how about boiling? Oh, boiling is a different story, of course. Boiling, or you mean to make a mashed
1: potato or something like that, or a or boiled potato salad. Yeah, um, it's straightforward. The important thing is not to overboil. If you overboil a potato, then you end up with the starch, converts, gets all the, all the fibers have been completely mushed up, they've been completely softened. So at the end of the day, you ha- you're going to have um, a bit of a stodgy mass Even if you get to that point, uh, it's probably a good idea to mix it with some full fat milk, additional butter, of course, as I think nearly everyone does that. And the idea is that that actually lubricates the the cells that are left over and you can get a a much better consistency for the mashed potato. But generally, it's it's never a good idea to overboil anything, to overcook everything.
0: So you mentioned earlier fries. So I think everybody loves, as we call them, chips. But they they are deep fried. Is, is that a bad thing? Is it really that unhealthy? You know, how much fat gets in, etc.?
1: No, no, no I, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. It depends very much on the type of oil that you use and the temperature you use it at. So, the, first of all, you, may, you have to choose a uh, type of oil that does not break down, does not transform to a different, uh, because it's a chemics, chemical reaction at high temperature, transform to something, uh, aldehyde or something else. So, I use uh, sunflower oil. Other people uh, say that uh, they use uh, corn oil or something like that, but depends. Uh, generally, I'm a little bit against the idea of using any uh, monounsaturated type of oil, like the extra virgin olive oil or things like that, for frying. I use it only for, for uh, salads and for pot, pot cooking, for stews and that. Generally, I go for sunflower oil. And then yeah, the idea when you fry is you have to reach at a high enough temperature when you throw in the, uh, the chips, the prepared potatoes, which have to be slightly wet, by the way. They have to be slightly wet when you throw them in. Immediately, there's going to be a reaction or rather a frying of the outside in order to seal in the potato. And that's crucial. If you don't throw them in at a high enough temperature and you don't seal them, then you're going to get oil ingress. You're going to get some oil penetrating and becomes, you know, really not very nice and unhealthy. So generally, a fresh uh, sunflower oil, it's very important. You cannot use a sunflower oil or any type of oil, deep fried oil, more than five, six times. That's, That's crucial. And then you throw them in and you wait a little bit, you stir them a little bit, and then you you allow them to settle and to fry without moving them, except occasional shaking. And then when you take them out, immediately you put some salt, because any remaining water will be sucked out by osmosis, by the salt that you put on, on the chips. And then you're going to get fantastic chips. You're going to get crispy on the outside, lovely cooked, cooked on the inside and things like that. So, yeah. That's the way to do it.
0: (laughs) So, we've started talking about oils now. And I think one, they vary quite a lot, don't they? And I think one thing people talk a lot about is smoke points. Oh, yes. Smoke
1: point is uh, it's actually already too high. When we're talking about smoke point, it's already the, the oil started reacting and forming dangerous compounds like aldehydes and things like that. So we're talking about 160 degrees. Sunflower, for example, has a smoke point which is above 180. So we need about 160. So when you put your hand above the oil, I, I actually do deep frying of, of chips. And uh, I don't, I don't even use a basket. I don't need to use a basket. And so, when you put your hand above it, you can should feel the heat, not too bad. And it should the, the oil should have lightened up in color, so the uh, it's ready for you. But you shouldn't see any smoke coming out. You shouldn't see any any uh, vapors coming out of the oil. That's you're ready to hide them. And then at that moment, you, you throw in the chips. It's with a bit of practice, you're gonna get it right. It's it's good fun.
0: So these days, everyone's, you know, very busy. Maybe you've got children, maybe you've got other things going on, work and things. So a lot of people have started doing something called batch cooking, which means cooking a big pot of food and then freezing it. So let's have a look at freezing. I think this is interesting. So what happens when we freeze food? What, you know, what's going on? What does it do to it? Well, it
1: depends what kind of food we're talking about. When the food is fully cooked, like, uh, for example, in a stew, or uh, something baked, there's nothing wrong with freezing it. Uh, It's always a good idea, of course, to let it cool down completely to make sure that it reaches room temperature. Then you should put it in the fridge for a while to to drop the temperature a bit further, and then you freeze it. Nothing much will happen uh, unless the food contains some fresh vegetables and fresh things. So it's, it's not a good idea at all to freeze anything that is... It has a sensitive cell, cellular structure, and a lot of water. For example, fruit and uh, certain vegetables. Uh, Certain vegetables like brassicas... Uh, like cabbage and uh, broccoli and uh, cauliflower, that they have no problem with the freezer. But certain other vegetables that are much, uh, much more uh, sensitive, baby marrows and aubergines, they, they would not do very well in the freezer in the freezer at all. Water will freeze, will expand, will start cracking and crashing the microfibers, microcellular structure within the the fruit. And when you defrost it, and the whole thing will be it will be mushy. And you've probably seen that any type of salad, for example, you can never freeze. A salad must be eaten very fresh, at most a few hours later, unless you've salted it. And if you've salted it within a half an hour, it's already, you know, wilted. So it's not very nice.
0: So sort of off the back of that, a lot of people say that, say they've made a lasagna, a moussaka, a stew or something, that it tastes better the next day.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I make a point of that in the in the book, actually. Because it's diffusion. Diffusion will continue even at low temperatures. So the diffusion, the more you leave the food, especially at room temperature, the more the, the uh, ingredients, uh, molecules, as well as atoms in certain cases, will actually diffuse and blend even better. So you're going to have some blending of the ingredients, and you're going to get even the creamy structure will be a, a lot better, because a slow only this type of um, ingredients will fuse their aromas and their tastes with one another. And they are better. Uh, absolutely. I really believe that. Uh, we do batch cooking as well at home in some ways. And uh, we, we eat it during the week whenever we can. Just uh, yesterday, for example, we made uh, some fantastic, we, we call it a type of lasagna with cream with bechamel on top. And I, uh, we had it on Sunday, and today we're going to have it two days later,
0: and I know it will be much better. So, yeah, we're looking forward to that. So let's move on. You mentioned bechamel there. So let's have a look at sauces. So lots of sauces are, are things called emulsions or reductions. You know, what's the difference and chemically what's going on?
1: Well, all types of sources rely on the, in, on the very fine mixing, a fine meaning at the very submicron level of uh, small particles, let's say, uh, not, not quite bubbles, but uh, uh, globules of oil mixed with water. So an emulsion is nothing else than a very fine mixing of uh, small particles of water with small particles of oil. And the only way you can do that is by very, very severe, very strong whisking. Now, even if you whisk it very strong, unless you put a little bit of lemon in it or some other uh, acidic substance, you're not going to get them to br- the oil and the water will separate very quickly. So you need to put something that will break down a little bit of the oil surface to allow the water surface, which we know the, the surface tension is very high, to, uh, to break up the oil and mix it together in, a, uh, in, in the globals together. So the idea behind that is uh, you need to, to reach a smooth texture. So hollandaise, for example, or mayonnaise or something like that, that's emulsion. You can do it also, you can cheat. You can put a bit of, of flour. Now, flour, what it does, it, it dissolves. First of all, you dissolve the flour in the oil, oil or butter. So you have the flour and the butter now uh, already mixed up. So the oil is a little bit separated, and then you add the milk. That's to make a besamel, for example. So the important thing is to mix it together. First of all, the oil and the flour. Uh, and then you add the, the milk, and then you you beat it very well again. And that's the secret, the small secret, of uh, getting a very smooth beso And by the way, if you want to make, for example, uh, a nice pie or something like that, you want to have a, a smooth, elastic dough, then you mix again the oil or butter with the flour very well. We mix it with your fingers if you can. And then you add the water to, to give it that uh, the elastic fracture, and that's very important. You need to to make
0: sure that you separate the oil, and you do that by cheating a little bit by adding the flour. So we mentioned Hollandaise there. So I think a, a, anyone who's made a Hollandaise or made Hollandaise on a semi-regular basis, at least. They'll have split it at some point. Oh uh, yes. Unfortunately, it is it is a horrible thing, isn't it?
1: But it's not a it's not a big problem. If it does happen, and you take it out of the fridge because it's gotta be kept in the fridge, cannot be kept for many, for many days, of course. And you beat it very, very hard as as hard as you can while you warm it up slightly. When I say slightly, 30 degrees, may maximum 35. And then if it's still there, add a little bit of fresh lemon. And then you keep on beating with the fresh lemon. What happens is the lemon and the oil uh, neutralize one another. And so with the result that the catalytic, if you like to call it, say that, uh, action of the, of the lemon disappears. So you need to add some fresh lemon. You keep on beating it. It's going to be as, as good as new again.
0: So we've talked a lot about lemon already, but it's, it has many magical properties in food, doesn't it? So one is, it can, how does it stop food from browning? All
1: right. Well, the way that that happens is um, not only food, but fruit and vegetables and all that. Uh, essentially, uh, all types of acidic materials, vinegars and uh, I don't know, whatever else you have, even orange juice, for example, I use for fruit, fruit salad. You essentially stop or reduce the, the action of the enzymes. Enzymes are uh, proteins, as we all know, in, uh, in organic materials that actually catalyze the production of proteins, but nevertheless uh, of other proteins. So we need to stop the oxidation reaction of sugars on fruit and vegetables, and we need to do that by reducing the pH, make it more acidic. So by putting the acids, we stop the enzymes, the uh, uh, action of the enzymes, so the, the enzymes now, the oxidation would not proceed, we're not going to get any browning. But you need to do it very, very quickly. Certain, for example, certain roots, uh, celery root, for example, celeriac, which is fantastic. uh, It's really, uh, the best way of doing it is immediately to cover it with lemon. Uh, If you have fruit salad, as I said, you can use uh, uh, orange juice. And if you're doing something, a stew or something like that, then it's probably a good idea to use some vinegar, wine even, or something like that.
0: So let's look at salt. This is a very sort of, in some ways controversial subject so personally I'm a big fan of salt so why does it taste so good and how does it make other foods taste better Right. That's a good, very good question. So a lot of
1: people are scared of salt. And I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, um, doctors and perhaps everyone is a little bit scared because uh, there's evidence of people that have already had some heart attacks or uh, other problems. Uh, they sh- they are told to reduce the salt. And there they are good reasons for it, of course, and one has to listen to the doctors. However, if you're healthy, then you should be able to, to eat as much as five grams of salt a day. In fact, that's recommended because the sodium ion is so extremely important together with potassium. It's extremely important to balance the, the, electro, the electrostatic field across the membranes of the cells. But anyway, that's, that's something different. So salts are very important. So we need to have lots of salt, at least five grams, which is about two teaspoons a day, if you think about it. That's a lot. Anyway, salt, the main reason that we use salt is, of course, to stimulate the taste buds. Stimulate any taste buds. Whenever we use salt, we stimulate all the taste buds, bitter for sugar, for anything, for sour. So whenever you use, you add a little bit of salt, like they do in, in chocolates, by the way. What they do is that you stimulate the taste buds with the salt, and then you get a better, a bigger rush of the sweet sugar or whatever you're eating. So salt increases the result, the stimulation by other types of uh, of tastes. And of course, the second thing, the reason that we use salt a lot is desiccation. As I mentioned earlier, osmosis is very important. Uh, the salt tends to... Um, to improve uh, re- removal of water. So it tends to, it can be used, of course, for long term keeping of foods and uh, as a preservative, anything like that. The, in the old times, of course, a lot of people knew that and they were doing that all the time. I think salt is very important also within stews. If you don't put salt in a stew, if you don't put salt in a potato, on a potato, you'll know immediately that something's wrong because of the, the way that the stimulation is not uh, fully uh, pleasurizing.
0: Let's move on to equipment then. One thing that I, th- I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with is different pans. So I, ha- I have cast iron and enamel, I have many different pans. Well, I'm going to upset you now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, the cast iron skillets, for
1: example, or pans, the problem there is that just like the uncoated ceramics, they're very porous materials. So you cannot really cook with them. They're they're porous. You know the, the food will go in there. So you need to do what what do they call it. I think they call it conditioning or something like that. Oh, seasoning. What's, seasoning. That's it. Yes, and uh, I, I think it's a crazy idea because essentially what you're doing by seasoning, you're essentially allowing certain oils to penetrate into the pores. You overheat the pan, and so you convert the oils to aldehydes, which and it's polymerization actually reaction, and you get some hardened plastics covering and, and blocking the pores. It's, it's a bit of a crazy idea. And the problem with the skillet having that is that you, you cannot stop uh, whenever you're frying something additional on top of it now, late, uh, later on. You are going to get some leaching of these aldehydes into your food. So it's not a good idea. Aldehydes are dangerous materials. It's like the, uh, you know, the result of anything that breaks down and reforms in chemistry. You can have uh, what you call uh, cyclic uh, hydrocarbons and aromatic hydrocarbons. Actually, the Millard reaction, the aroma that you, you actually enjoy is an aromatic hydrocarbon. And it's not a good idea. The well-known problem with the runaway Millard reaction. So you need to be careful of that. It's, uh, it contains acrylamide and it's, it's never a good idea. But anyway, let's go back to the, to the skillet. Uh, another problem with the skillet is that you cannot control the temperature very well because they have such a high heat capacity. So when it gets hot, it takes time to get hot. But then when it gets hot, you cannot control the temperature. Even if you take it out of the, out of the hob, uh, you, the temperature still remains very high. So the best things are uh, aluminum, I think. Coated aluminum. Never use copper or uncoated copper or uncoated aluminum because, again, there is some leaching going on, especially for uh, stews and pot boiling and things like that. And uh, you you want to avoid that. But if it's coated properly with a mixture of ceramic and Teflon and uh, PTFE, that's ideal because then you have – it's a low heat capacity. It's easier to cool down. You have much better control. And that's why, uh, for example, professional chefs use special types of aluminium uh, cooking pots, cooking things. And uh, the idea is that as soon as you remove it from the gas hob, then immediately you cool it down. You need to have control. So, uh, do you have any other tips about other utensils? You know, oh, lots of tips, lots of tips. I can give you that. I don't know how much time we have, but um, well, the important thing, as we said, is to make sure that you have good stainless steel or coated aluminium. Uh, pots and pans. That's the best. You can also use a glazed ceramic oven trays uh, if you want to do a lot of oven work. Uh, But uh, stainless steel is probably the best.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus. That was George Vickinis. To read more about the topics we discussed in this episode, pick up a copy of his book, Physics in the Kitchen. The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download us on your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com.